So let's look at Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. They should be on the screen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceit desires, and to renew and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So if Billy, our lead pastor, can come, my hot husband, I'll pray for him. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you that you are gracious and kind and good. Thank you that you love us even though we do not deserve it. I ask that you be with us now. Would you open our hearts? Would you open our minds to understand this scripture? That you would be with Billy, that your spirit would speak so clearly through him, and that it would speak clearly to us as well. Hide him behind the shadow of the cross, that his mind would be clear, and that he would be focused, and it would only be you speaking through him, Lord. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So we are in Ephesians chapter 4, and um, I am excited about this specific passage because I think it really helps us to understand explicitly what it looks like for us to live in the newness of life that God has called us to. So there's a trend on Facebook right now, for those of you who are still on the uh, abomination that is Facebook, where uh, it's called the Decade Challenge, right? And so what it is, is you post a picture of yourself from 2009, and you post a picture of yourself from now to see how much you've changed over a decade. And for me, um, people were, you know, posting all this stuff, and they're like, you should do this. And so I was like, you know, why not? I'll look back and look at myself from 10 years ago, and let's just say, you know, it's just this Put it up. Let's put up the picture. So um, that's me on the left with swoopy emo hair. And uh, sure. Um, just, let's just drink this in for a minute. One, that's about Lord knows how many pounds ago. Um, there, I grew into my nose a little bit. Look at that honker. Man, look at that hair too, that swoopy emo hair. The worst part of this is how dumb are those suspenders? Like who wears suspenders over a t-shirt and thinks it's the coolest thing ever? Um, that was me. Please take that down as quickly as you can. All right, so that was me, right? 2009 was a year of tight pants, band t-shirts, suspenders, cardigans, vests, and deep v-necks. Lord, have mercy on my soul, right? I, it was rough. It was rough. And I'm sure all of you guys could look back at some of the silly things that you used to wear and roll your eyes or blush with embarrassment, right? I'm thankful that I dumped the emo phase. I am. Paul, he's talking in our passage about putting on a new wardrobe, taking off the old, putting on the new. And he's not talking about bad haircuts, which, man, I used to care so much about that. You guys have no idea. Like, I would get my hair trimmed every two weeks. It was so, I was, I was a, a doofus. All right, so anyways, he's not talking about bad haircuts. He's not talking about tacky clothes. He's talking about the things that we used to walk in, right? The idea is that when we put on Jesus, when we put on Christ, we receive a new spiritual identity, and with it, we receive new spiritual responsibility. We take off the old corrupt garment of our old self, and we put on the new garment. We live in light of our new identity. And that's what I want us to talk about and look at tonight, that this, in Christ, we are made new. 
In Christ we are made new. So let's just jump right in. Let's look at our passage and let's see first who we once were. Look again at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul's tone is changing here. Okay, he means business, right? He's like, now this I say. He's, he's trying to, to get everyone's attention. He's saying, I'm saying this and I'm testifying in the Lord. In other words, hey, y'all, pay attention. This is important. My grandma, when I was a kid, if, if she wanted to get our attention, she would just go, here now. That's how she did it, right? Which, you know, throws me back to my roots of uh, Kannapolis, North Carolina. So what is Paul's exhortation? Why is he trying to snap us back to reality? What's he trying to get us to see? Well, it's pretty straightforward. It's simply this. Don't live like you don't know Jesus. Don't live like you don't know Jesus. Paul's reminding these Gentiles, right, who were once alienated, that they have been made new, that they shouldn't live like the morally corrupt Gentiles around them. Paul is saying that we should look different Now remember, we have to understand the context of Ephesus. This is a city that is pervasive in idol worship, in sensuality, in brokenness of all kinds, right? Prostitution is a part of worship for them. So he is saying, you, you can't do that anymore. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but you know, I can do, I can do all these other things. You should look different. Paul's saying that we should look at ourselves and see not the old garments, but see the newness of life that we've been given in Jesus. The idea is that you and I, we must look different. And Paul's reminding his readers that before we come to Jesus, our minds, our feelings, our actions, they're bleak. In fact, he says in verse 17 that we lived in the futility of our mind. He goes on to flesh out this logic of of our foolish mind and our darkened heart. Listen to the flow of Paul's logic. He starts here. He says, the hardness of heart leads to ignorance, which involves being alienated from the life of God, which then leads to our being darkened in our understanding with the result that we then become callous and given up to sensuality and thus greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The reality is this, we were created with eternity set in our hearts and when we don't live for the things of God, we try to find meaning in anything and everything we can. There is a reason people are overwhelmingly obsessed with politics right now because they are looking for some kind of purpose, some kind of hope, some kind of meaning. Paul, what he's doing here, he's putting a stethoscope to the fallen heart and he's noticing that the beat is out of control. He's saying that without Jesus, we have a dead, hardened, and calloused heart. That a life without Jesus is marked by promiscuity. It's marked by every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Now, Think about this for a moment. We, we like to think like, okay, Billy, come on now. Look, I know people who don't know Jesus and they're great. They're wonderful people. They're really sweet. And that's true. I'm not saying that people are, you know, utterly, completely without any kind of redeeming grace if they don't know Jesus. That's not the truth at all. That people can certainly seem good and do good things, but they do them from a warped perspective. Let's consider our cultural context. We can be violent we can be hostile, we can be raging perverts, and we can do it all in private. We have access via the internet to all kinds of insidious pornographic content. It's right there at our fingertips. People create fake social media accounts just to blast people. They do. I listened to an episode, one of my favorite podcasts uh, is a podcast called Criminal. If you don't know it, 
It's fantastic. Download it if you're on a long road trip. Really, really, really good. There's an episode titled Homewrecker. And on it, there was a lady who was a real estate agent who had a small disagreement on Facebook, which is where all small disagreements go to live, right? I don't know if you've ever done that where someone says something and you're like, yeah, well, I'm not sure. And then it blows up. There's this uh, Facebook group, if you want a, a good time, it's called Let's Talk Burke County. And I mean anything on this group. Literally this week, someone posted, hey, this restaurant's opening. And the first comment underneath it is, nothing ever lasts in that place. And the next comment is, I bet it's going to be terrible. I'm like, do you people just hate life? Like, what's wrong with you? The internet seems to bring out the worst in us. So here's what happened. She got into one of those kind of little spats online, little disagreement. And then um, this person created a fake account goes on Facebook to the Remax website for the real estate agency she works for, writes a review saying that her and her husband were viewing a home, that she was the real estate agent, she couldn't make it, and that when she got there late, the real estate agent and her husband were having an affair. Um, and this got posted all over social media. She then submitted it to a website called, I think it was like something like homewreckers.com, and it got all over the internet. Her uh, address, phone number, all that stuff was put out there. Her life was ruined because of a disagreement on Facebook. Y'all, that's a darkened heart, right? That's messed up. For those of us in Jesus, we know that tug from the old man as we live in the already but not yet. All it takes is someone to cut us off in traffic when it's downpouring rain and you just watch Frozen 2 and you want to get out of there. At least that was me last night. I don't know. Um, it just Sometimes it, it's something small like that that pulls us back towards the old man. And, and when someone we disagree with posts online, again, we get cut off in traffic or a coworker does that annoying thing they always do, all of this ugliness can well up within us as we're pulled back towards that old man. But this is what Paul says. He says, that's not the way you learned Christ, Right? The good news of this passage is that God can transform anyone by grace. And there were many in the Ephesian church that used to match the description that Paul just made in the first part of this passage. But they were made new creations. And Paul is putting a clear point forward. As new creations in Christ, we're to think differently, respond to the truth differently, and act differently. God enables us to live holy lives by the power of the Spirit. And Paul isn't saying here that we need to throw away our computers, smash the smartphone, start making your own clothes, and become Amish, right? That's not the beckoning call of this passage. Not at all. Paul displays what it looked like to contextualize and to reach into culture. I mean, all you got to do is flip over to Acts, see him at Mars Hill, where he's quoting their own poets, and he's speaking the hope of the gospel in their context to hopefully see people come to know Jesus. What Paul is saying is that we are new. Listen, if your friend who doesn't know Jesus looks at you and your life and he sees no difference between you and them, that should cause pause for you. Specifically, if you look at your behavior. If you see a life that bears no fruit, then really we need to investigate if we've put off the old man or not. Paul starts here with a really strong exhortation to put off the old garment, but then he transitions to see from who we used to be to who we now are, who we are. So look again, look at verse 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him 
and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But that is not the way you learned Christ. How do we learn a person? Right, if you think about school, we learn a subject. Right? We learn data, we learn facts, we learn about the subject. But becoming new, being a Christian involves more than learning about Jesus. Right? It is learning Christ in the sense that we come to actually know him. That we know him. And learning about him, we know him. We come to trust him, to know him, to walk with him. And knowing Jesus, we know that it is by him alone that we are saved. Jesus is the one who imputes, that is to give us his own righteousness. We're declared innocent on the basis of his finished work. Now I want to stop here because anytime you preach a sermon where the push, the draw is to live a life of holiness, put off the old man. I think a lot of what starts to well up within us is works righteousness. I got it. Tell me what to do. Tell me how to do it. I'm going to stop. I'm going to be better. The reality is, on your own volition, trying as hard as you can, you will constantly, the best clothing you're ever going to pull out of your dresser is the old man. You need to put on Jesus. Jesus alone is the one who can save you, the one alone that can clothe you in his righteousness. Right? We're declared innocent on the basis of whose finished work? Ours? No, his. We are justified by our faith in him. And here's the deal. Our status in the future, it, it's, it, it is the only thing that is isn't the only thing that's changed, right? It's not the only thing that we're hoping for, that someday maybe some pie in the sky, you know, the sweet by and by will be flying away. No, right here, right now, in the day-to-day grind, we can be changed. We can. I don't want to walk through this idea that you were made new. See, what happens is you and I, too often, we have what I would call gospel amnesia, right? We, we know the good news of Jesus. We know that, hey, it's only by Jesus Christ that I can be made new. It's only by looking to him for my hope that I can be secured in him. And we fall into one of two categories. Either one, we try really hard to mind our P's and Q's and do all that we can so that we can be good enough, holy enough, and then God will be happy with me. Or we fall into licentiousness, which is this idea that I can do whatever I want because Jesus will forgive me. We need to live in the tension between these two, which says my faith should be working. I should be changed by Jesus in such a way that I desire to follow and obey him, knowing that I may sin, I may falter, but that I can return to him and that that forgiveness would be offered me. Here's the truth. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. We are in desperate need of him. So often we want to get to this place where I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I got it together. I know what I'm doing. Just tell me the verse. But the reality is, the more we know Jesus, the more we realize just how far we've gone from him. There's a a chart that I drew so much at the beginning of this plant as we were kind of dreaming and scheming called the cross chart. And I should have put it up on here, but I figured you guys might throw stuff at me if I put it up again. It's this idea that the more you know Jesus, you have a greater growing awareness of God's holiness. And in the same breath, you have a greater growing awareness of your sinfulness. And you see how wide the gap between you and an almighty holy God is and just how much you need Jesus. You and I need to adopt the mantra of St. Patrick. This is what he said. He said, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, 
Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. In our world, we are riddled with anxiety. I was listening to a podcast where a man was talking about how he was in Hawaii. He was in a layover between Australia to America, and there was an earthquake that happened. He felt it. He was in the bathroom. He actually just thought a truck drove by, got on the plane, flew on over to California, gets off the plane, looks at his phone, and realizes there was an earthquake in Hawaii, and he had felt it. But the anxiety didn't well up in him until he actually read about it. There's this kind of false tension we live in where the world is constantly trying to pull us down. And the way of Jesus is so foreign to us. He says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, but we are riddled with anxiety. We live in a culture of outrage where everyone just wants to be angry about something. And what we need in the midst of this is to hear the better story of the gospel. We don't need the hope of politicians. We don't need the hope of technology. We need the hope of the gospel. Low and slow is the way of Jesus. That's why we do these liturgical practices every week, right? We read these long confessions. We pray these prayers that are responsive. And maybe some of you maybe grew up in a more traditional context. Maybe you grew up like Episcopalian or Anglican or Catholic. And you're like, I don't, this is weird. Like, are we going to kneel? The reason we do these things is because we are so quick to just burn through life that we don't intentionally slow down and speak the words of scripture. We don't intentionally slow down to hear from Jesus. But you and I, we need to see all the ways that we have been made new. This doctrine of what we call regeneration is the idea that you were dead and you've been made alive. That your heart was not beating for Christ. That you were spiritually spiritually dead even though you were physically alive and breathing. And that when you meet Jesus, he regenerates, he renews your heart. There's these different fundamental aspects, and I want to look at them briefly. There's 11. Don't worry, we're going to go through them quickly. The first one is this, new birth. When you are regenerated, you experience new birth. To be born again as a new person with a new heart, a new nature, means that at the deepest level, you have a new identity, a new passionate desire for God's word and will. And this change is so deep that we see it throughout the language of scripture all over the place. And it comes from Jesus's comes from Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, saying that a person must be born again to enter God's kingdom, meaning that each sinner born physically alive and spiritually dead needs to be born again so that their heart would be regenerated. And we illustrate the significance of this regeneration through baptism, where we physically show that Jesus lived, died, and rose for us as we go under the water and rise up out of it as a demonstration that our old self has died with Christ and our new self is raised with him. So now walking with Jesus, being alive in the world, isn't something you do as a duty, but rather something you do as a new person with a new mind and you do it as a delight. So we start there. We have new birth in Christ. The second is we have a new Lord. Satan and sin no longer dominate regenerated people. Instead, we're born again to a new life with God who is our new Lord and who rules over all of our life. In Ephesians, Paul is welcoming us to know the Lord Jesus Christ better throughout life, even though we've already heard him and have been taught by him. 
Here's the deal. Jesus isn't just some theological concept. Jesus just isn't some nice person that we look at as a historical figure that maybe had some good ideas. He is the risen, living king who reigns now and forevermore. And our new Lord loves, forgives, serves, gifts, hears, empowers, and indwells us. He will never fail. He will never leave or forsake you. Our new Lord defeated our enemy Satan, our old Lord, so that we no longer have to believe his lies. We no longer have to succumb to his temptations or to serve his mission. Among all of the benefits of having Jesus as our new Lord is that other previous and false lords, such as Satan, people who were used by Satan, such as maybe an abusive boyfriend, parent, spouse, they are dethroned. You and I, we have a new Lord and his name is Jesus. The next thing, three, we have a new heart, a new heart. In the Bible, the heart is this symbolic seat and center of our whole identity. It's expressed outwardly in words and deeds. The word heart occurs more than 900 times in various forms throughout the scriptures. That's a lot, okay? Enough that we should take notice. Jesus said that words, lusts, how we spend our money, evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly, good and evil, sinful grief, anxiety, drunkenness, all that comes out of the heart. And the Old Testament frequently speaks of regeneration in terms of a deep work in our hearts. That when we're born again and Jesus becomes our new Lord, the deepest desires of our hearts change. And that we now have a new heart for the things of God. God says it this way, right? He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You and I have a new heart. Four, we're new creations. New creations. As regenerated people, we are changed so deeply that scripture calls us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Practically, this means that if there is to be any true holiness in us, if there's to be any change in our behavior, it must be preceded with a change in our nature, which can only be done by the Holy Spirit. Right on this point, Galatians really points to it really well. It says this in Galatians 6.15, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, which are both outward acts, avail anything but a new creation, which is an inward act. That's what we need. Sadly, what happens is you and I forget this. We forget the wonderful benefit of regeneration. Instead, we try to change our outward behavior. I just need to be a better person. I just need to stop swearing so much. I just need to drink less. You know, we think that's going to fix everything. We forget that change begins deep inside of us and works its way out into our daily actions. God desires for each of us to be born again in him and to live a life as a new person in relationship with him rather than seeking to be transformed by some outward religious effort. God doesn't want to simply improve the old you. He wants to make an entirely new you. He does. You are a new creation in Christ. Fifth, you and I, we have new minds. We have a new mind. 
As a new person in Jesus, we're given a new mind to think as he thinks and love what he loves. Now, this doesn't mean that we're smarter than our non-Christian friends. Certainly not me. I mean, not, no way, right? It's this idea that non-Christians are, it's not that they're unable to come up with great insights such as medicine or engineering. Absolutely they are. However, it does mean that without a new mind in Jesus, the things of God are not naturally known and the things of God are not naturally embraced. For example, apart from the Holy Spirit, Jesus as fully God, fully man, that he died in our place. Well, that sounds like foolishness to someone who doesn't know Jesus, right? In fact, Paul knew this exactly. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 16, he says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. I think it'd be a good practice every now and again for you to just say the gospel out loud. Because you start to realize how utterly ridiculous it sounds, right? If you start to say, well, you know, God created the world and then this snake rolled up and started talking to, to Eve, it just start, you start saying it out loud and you realize it sounds kind of wonky. It sounds kind of out there. It sounds like something only God could do. And when you have the mind of Christ, you see glory, but when you don't, you see folly. As we feed our minds with the truth of Christ, as found in the scripture, our thinking begins to radically change because we have new minds. Six, new love. If we're born again, We'll love as Jesus loved. We will love others like Christ loved. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Because God is love, when he makes us new, we're connected to the source of all true love, which is the Trinity. As a result, we have this unbelievable capacity that if we walk in obedience to love God, we can love him well, we can love our spouses, we can love our children, we can love our friends, our neighbors, and yes, even our enemies with the renewed love given to us by God. You and I have new love in Christ. Seven new desires. We're cranking. We're over halfway there. A new person has new desires that are akin to a new appetite for the things of God. Paul speaks of this briefly in Galatians 5. He says this, But I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That last phrase is incredibly important. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the thing you want to do. As Christians, we desire God's will instead of our will because of the indwelling, transforming presence and power of his Holy Spirit. But in this life, as we grow to be more and more like Jesus, we still wrestle with sinful desires and temptations. We do. When we do give in to those sinful desires, man, we become miserable until we repent and live in obedience to God. Have you ever experienced the anguish of sin? Paul described his own experience with this action. He said in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Okay, uh, Paul wrote Bible. All right, So if you're like, man, I feel like I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a train wreck. My life is not the way it should be. You're talking about pursuing holiness. And I don't feel like any of this sounds like me. You have good company. The Christian life is to be in passionate pursuit of our regenerated heart's deepest desire. 
without settling for the lesser sinful desires of our former self. Psalm 37, 4 says this, Delight yourselves also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. As Christians, we are freed to pursue with great passion our deepest God-given desires. When we do, when we worship God, not just by obeying what he commands in duty, but rather in delighting in his commands as our will and his will become one and the same, well, then we are able to pursue with passion. See, religion doesn't understand the new desires of regenerated heart, and it wrongly assumes that Christians at their deepest level primarily have an appetite for sin. As a result, religion deadens our desires with guilt and man-made legalistic rules, assuming that passion leads to sin. The biblical understanding of regenerated desire overturns this thinking, teaching that we don't, come, we don't overcome sin by religion and rules and by deadening our passion, but rather we overcome sin by becoming more passionate for new desires and the things of God. Do you catch that? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying we don't overcome sin by saying, let's just be drab, boring, you know, suit and tie, like mind your P's and Q's, don't drink and cuss and, and, and vote a certain way, and then everything will be gravy. That is not at all what makes us like Jesus. What makes us like Jesus is when we desire the things of God. Passionately, earnestly, we long for God. We yearn for him. We desire him. We seek him earnestly. I mean, if you read the Psalms, they're dripping with this. The man who was after God's own heart struggled with sin, but when he actively set before the Lord and pursued him passionately, man, he was oozing with gospel goodness. That we would passionately, earnestly desire the things of the Lord. I've, I've said this quote before and I hesitated to use it, but it's so dang good that I don't care. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is like, so a friend, Hannah mentioned this, a friend of ours is flying us to, uh, not flying, I wish. Ooh, that'd be amazing. We are driving, but they're paying for us to go to Disney World with our, our child, which is amazing. Um, this little girl has never experienced anything like this. And so for her to get to experience something like this when her life has been so challenging, and now as we've become her foster parents, to take her and to bless her in this way is going to be incredible. But imagine, if you will, we get to Disney World, we're there at the Magic Kingdom, which is every little girl's dream and my nightmare. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. So we're there. There's a thousand people. Everything's $15. It's going to be fantastic. Um, imagine we're on our way. We're getting ready to get on the tram. Right there it is. Disney World, the Magic Kingdom, every little girl's paradise, right? And our little girl is just like, you know what? I don't want to get on there. I just want to stay over here and like play in this puddle all day long. Like that'd be really cool. What if we just did that? That's what you and I do. We have this incredible, unbelievable, amazing good news of the gospel. Like, here's the thing. Christianity is that God is worth it. That there is hope and joy, infinite, abundant, amazing goodness available to you right here, right now. That you can have new desires for him. But you and I are like, man, God just doesn't want me to have any fun. Nonsense. 
We should throw the best parties. We should bring the better wine. Jesus did. We should celebrate and rejoice because one day we will see all things made new. Every tear will be wiped away. We'll see the lame walk and speak and dance and rejoice and it's going to be beautiful and amazing. Or we could follow after the numb, fleeting passions of this world. But we shouldn't because we have new desires in Christ. Let's keep going. A new community. New community. Man, as regenerated people, we are forgiven of our sins and we're reconciled both to God as Christians and to fellow Christians in the church. Subsequently, we desire and we pursue community with other Christians. In this community, it's given multiple names in the New Testament, including citizens of God, kingdom, members of God's family, a temple for God's presence, and parts of one body. By living in community with fellow Christians as the church, we learn more about God and how to live a life that glorifies him and help others do the same. We need the body of Christ. We do. Because you and I forget that we have new desires. We forget the goodness of the gospel. Again, we have this gospel amnesia. And I need you and you need me to speak the hope of the gospel to each other and to see the gospel realized in real friendship. It's really frustrating and sad. Like I, I go to places downtown and I'll try to like get some work done and you just look around at people hanging out and everyone's face is buried in their phones. Like we are so ingrained and being shaped by technology and our culture around us. We all long for and crave community so desperately that we're clinging to devices for it. And there's this synthetic community of Instagram stories and Facebook and Twitter like hot takes, but none of it satisfies like genuine gospel community, like a brother or sister who's there for you in the lowest of low moments, who loves you despite your brokenness, who will walk with you and sit with you in hardship and rejoice with you when there's times of rejoicing. You and I have new community and we need new community. Nine, new power. God gives us new spiritual, supernatural power to live new lives. This power is the indwelling power of God, the Holy Spirit, alive in us. This is why Jesus called the Spirit the helper and called the Spirit our teacher. The new power of God, the Holy Spirit, is unleashed to help us continually repent of sin, to turn from it, and to, toward, towards, and to turn towards God as we are filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is like the sail on a boat being filled with the wind. Just as the ship opens up its sail, that it may be powerfully driven towards a destination. We as Spirit-filled believers, when we open our minds and our hearts and our wills to the things of God, we welcome His powerful direction. And through the power of the Spirit of God, He helps us to live holy lives and He enables us to obey Him. In this way, the gospel is the opposite of religion. See, religion tragically teaches that if you obey God, then God loves you. But the exact opposite is true. The gospel reveals that the, because God loved us, we can now obey him by the power of the Holy Spirit. You have new power in Christ. Ten, new freedom. In tandem with new power is a new freedom, which is the ability to say no to sin and yes to God. In this life, we will either have our faces towards sin and our backs towards God, or we'll have our faces towards God and our backs towards sin. One of our freedoms in this new life is the ability to repent, to turn our back on sin, and to turn our faces towards God, to live new lives in holiness. This is what theologians call Coram Deo. 
You're welcome. Now you get it. This is why we named the church this. Living in the presence of God, living before his face, that we would know him. That we don't have to hide our sin. We don't have to excuse our sin, blame others for our sin, or deny our sin. In Christ, our sin can be put to death because Jesus died for it. In Christ, you can live a new life because Jesus rose in newness of life. You have freedom in Christ. And 11, new life. New life. This is the culmination. A new life that is vastly different from your old life. That's what our passage is doing. It's, const- it's contrasting our old life with our new one. As we struggle with sin, I just want to clear the air. A Christian is not simultaneously saved and lost. Right? A Christian is not simultaneously a child of God and an enemy of God. Both forgiven and unforgiven by Jesus. As Christians, no, we are all together new in Christ. While we are genuinely new, we are not yet completely new. We are waiting for that realization to happen in glory. There is still within us a seed of rebellion from Adam. That is the temptations of this world, the snares of the enemy. In this life, we continually grow to live out of our new identity as new people in Christ. Theologically, this is what we call sanctification. That we learn more and more about Jesus from his word as we walk in community seeking to obey him. We become more like him by the power of the Holy Spirit as we believe the truths of the Bible that we just talked about, about being made new. And one day, we will be fully, completely, unchangingly, and eternally new. And we call this glorification. And on that day, our faith will be made sight as we see the risen King Jesus face to face. In Christ, we are new. He is not done with us yet. When you and I, when we don't see change in us, and some of us, man, we, we are deep in guilt. We have guilty consciousness. We see nothing but what appears to be the old man battling every single step forward in the Christian life. We see none of the evidences that we are new creatures in Christ. What do we do then? More spiritual disciplines? Tried and true steps to a happy and victorious life? Positive thinking? Hypnosis? Like, what do we do? I think the place to start for the biblical answer is right here in our passage in verse 24. And to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. The fact is, just as justification is by faith alone, this same faith in Christ's finished work is also the essential means for our growth and sanctification and in the new life of holiness. Now, I just said a lot of theological words. Here's what I mean. We believe that we have put on the new man, not because we see it, but because the Bible teaches it, and we believe God and his word to be true. We consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God as an act of faith, because it is in the foundational truth for a believer in Christ to walk this out in faith. We have been set free. Now we walk in the freedom by faith. We have sanctification by faith. Listen, we will never see enough good fruit to satisfy our consciences if we look to fruit as the source of our hope. 
All right, Jesus said our righteousness is as filthy rags. And sometimes we miss the sting of context. Okay, Jesus meant those rags, and I'm not going to gross anyone out, are real gross. If you want to look it up later on your own, by all means. But what he means here is that we take a pile of stinky, stinky, filthy, disgusting rags and say, look God, look what I've done. That's what you and I do by our good works. Our faith, our hope, the onus of our salvation is all on Jesus. If you have truly entrusted yourself to Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. You are light. Now the charge is walk as children of light by faith. Now, the temptation, again, is to one of two things. Either one will say, well, I just need to do more, try harder, earn it. Or we'll say, well, Jesus has got me, so I'll just keep sinning so that grace may increase. By no means. We walk in this tension seeing the great chasm between our sinfulness and God's holiness and we cling to the gospel saying, Jesus, please keep making me new. Keep clothing me in your righteousness. Specifically, it says here in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness, oh, I'm sorry, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. How are you being renewed? How are you renewing your mind? We we use this big word here called liturgy, and all that means is order of worship. And the idea is this. Everything we do in life is worship. We are worshiping something constantly. A lot of times it's our own self and our comfort and our desires. It is. The reality is, is we have a flow and an ebb and a flow of life that we do every week. On Tuesday, I do this. Maybe if you're even chaotic and you kind of bounce all over the place, that's your liturgy. That's the way you order your life. What you and I must do is we must reform ourselves. We must. We must renew our minds. Did you know if you would just wake up in the morning, if you just get up in the morning, and before you touch your phone or turn the TV on, if you would just go sit at the table in silence, make a cup of coffee, and read a psalm, you would be better than most Christians in the world. You just would. Because you would be renewing your mind. You would not be letting culture colonize you from the minute you wake up. You would not let, you know, all, this, all the dings and all the things that we see on our phones. For me, as soon as I pop up on my phone, it's a new board game to buy. It's a new post about on some blog. It's even Christian good things, Twitter, like calling out to me. Who do I want to speak into my heart and my mind? Why am I letting culture yank me around and rip me apart? Why do I let the pressures of what other people think speak so profoundly and deeply? Instead, why don't I go and sit before the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light? That's the call for each of us is that we would renew our minds. There's so many things I would love to give you practically, but I think rather than just feed into legalism, let me just say this. If you believe in Jesus, you have been made new. And the temptation of the devil is that you would try to earn something you already have. That you would do instead of being that you would feel no peace, no satisfaction, that you would be riddled with guilt, filled with anxiety. We're told in Scripture to cast our anxieties on the Lord because He cares for us. Man, my my prayer, my petition for you guys, especially as we're a young church plant, thinking of how we're going to actively speak into this cultural time, this moment, where yes, we're in the rural south, but because of the advent of the internet, man, we are in a post-Christian culture as much as if we were in L.A. We are. We need the gospel. We need to stop rushing for more answers. 
and sit before the one, the ancient of days. Augustine said it beautifully. Um, if you've never heard this, um, that he wrote a, a poem, a song called Lay Have I Loved You. And he meant that as he realized late in his life he had not followed after the Lord. Yeah, you're looking at me because Gunger did it too. Um, and he realized how far he had gone and how he wished he had known God and walked with him all of his life. He didn't see Christianity as a get-out-of-hell-free card. He saw Christianity as the true meaning and purpose of life, what it looked like to live what is the good life. And he says, late have I loved you. And he says this about God, ever ancient, ever new. May you know this one who is ever ancient, but is ever new. May you know the hope of the gospel. May you know the goodness of the way, the truth, and the life who calls you to a life away from the busyness and the scurry and worry to sit before the one who's made you new. Would you see the multifaceted way that he has clothed you in righteousness? That when you stand before God, you don't hold up a bunch of filthy rags saying, look at what I've done. But that you look to the one who stands for you and says, I've made a way. This one's mine. That you're clothed in his righteousness alone as your hope and security. Let's pray. God, we are so eternally grateful that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. That you have called us to you, Lord, to see you, to hope in you, to trust in your goodness and in your mercy. Lord, would we believe this truth? Would we know this truth? Would we walk consistently, continually before you, knowing that you are the one who makes all things new? You are the one who's called us to yourself. And so, Lord, we pray all of this, trusting, knowing your goodness, knowing that you love us, that you care for us, knowing that we can cast our anxieties before you. So, Lord, we pray that we would walk in this truth. We pray that we would believe this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.